Can I share a screen? I can't. Okay. Um, I wanted to... There's this, like, account called, like, Random Athletes that um, just posts random pictures of D1 athletes on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And it's very good. And the Colorado School of Mines pictures, for some reason, all of them are insane. <laughs> and for the last, like, two weeks, I've been like, why do I know about the Colorado School of Mines? And it's because of this Twitter account with a very specific... Every time I see the picture, I'm like, let's go. We got the Colorado School of Mines is here. For, for two years in a row, the um, Colorado School of Mines football team has been undefeated gone to champions and then lost and i have seen i mean i'm not obviously at the school anymore but i have i've watched them walk around with these haircuts Hello, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Guidehouse Insights Plugged In Podcast, where we go deep into emerging sustainability topics from battery trucks to hydrogen trucks and even solar trucks. I am Jake Foose, a research analyst on the Insights Transport team. My recent research has been about the intersections of electrification and autonomy in the mobility space. This month, we have the pleasure of speaking with Erin Winkler about her report, Hybrid Solar Plus Storage Technology Markets. Erin is a research analyst in the Guidehouse Insights Energy Storage team, where her work focuses on energy storage technologies and markets, including generation, deployment, and infrastructure. She leads modeling efforts for database forecasting as well as statistical modeling. Before working at Guidehouse, she worked as a data scientist at Charter Communications, as well as a mathematical statistician at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Erin has her BS in Applied Mathematics and Statistics from the Colorado School of Mines, where she was in their caving club. Welcome to the podcast, Erin. Is it true you were a caver? Yeah. Hi, Jake. And hey, everyone else. I um, am a caver. I love caving. I haven't been in a minute, but I do like to squeeze into tight little spaces and crawl for unholy amounts of time without a helmet on in the dark. We've never had anyone talk about their love of spelunking here on this podcast. So we love to, we love anytime we get to use that word because it's the fun word to say. It is a fun word. It's unfortunately not the word that we use as cavers, and we tend to not like it, but it's a way more what? enjoyable word. What's wrong with the word spelunk? It just has uh, negative connotations in grottos, which are local clubs for caving. You're cavers. You gotta be cool. Cavers are are pretty cool. Way cooler than statisticians. Luckily, I get to be both. <laughs> All right. To get to it. Aaron, it seems like from the beginning of your career, you've worked in sustainability and in renewable energy specifically. What made you interested in this as a concept and more specifically, especially as a career after college? I knew that I wanted to go into STEM and specifically the sciences when I was eight years old. Of course, I wanted to go into marine biology because that was way more interesting than anything else. Like every kid wants to do. But when I got to high school, I took a statistics class and I took environmental science. And 
both of those really resonated with me and were something that I found a lot of passion in. And I kind of realized I had this skill set in my mathematical abilities and I could potentially marry what I can do in statistics to help improve the sustainability crisis that we have. So when I went to college and I was starting off at Mines doing my degree in math, I was lucky in that I was able to secure an internship with the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL in hydrogen systems. And so I worked for five years on hydrogen systems and decarbonization of transportation and did a lot of other projects into battery degradation and solar cell supply chain and recycling and all of that. And just kind of realized this is something I'm really passionate about, which is interesting because I didn't even like physics too. I like sincerely hated physics. But as I got into energy more and saw the folks that I worked with be extremely passionate about it, it just kind of stuck with me. And there was a brief moment that I went into telecommunications and four months after making that career move, I found myself back in energy because this is just really where my heart is with everything. And I feel fortunate because here at Guidehouse, I've had the opportunity to really dive into energy storage systems, which I like to think of as the final frontier for renewable energy. And I also have the opportunity to use my statistical modeling expertise to really help with a lot of our forecasting and use a lot of different models that often get overlooked for different forecasting to kind of secure our grid. I'd love to always hear someone who finds a way to take their unique skills and apply it into sustainability and not just, I want to work in sustainability and working backwards from there. Yeah, it was definitely not exactly where I thought I was going to end up. I really thought I'm going to go into agriculture and that's what I wanted to do and do ecology. But somebody told me when I started my internship that ecology doesn't just have to be animal related or plant related, you can think of ecology as in the grid or as in transportation systems. And once that was kind of dictated to me, and once my advisor in college told me that with statistics, you can play in anybody's backyard, it kind of clicked that this is this is where I'm supposed to be for my career. And to get to some of your work here and work in sustainability for a career, I want to talk about your recent work on hybrid solar plus storage. And I think we want to break that down piece by piece for the listeners so they can know kind of what the market is with it. So could you give us a quick primer on hybrid solar plus storage? Sure. So in energy storage, there's a few groupings that we'll use to define and describe systems. So the one that people might be most familiar with is behind the meter versus front of the meter storage systems, where front of the meter focuses on large scale systems that are centralized energy generation. So thinking kind of like a utility scale system in general. Behind the meter systems look at something more like a residential rough storage system or solar farm connected to a warehouse or a manufacturing facility. This report that I've worked on really focuses more on the utility scale, so front of the meter side. Secondly, with energy storage, we have standalone energy systems or energy storage systems, and we have co-located systems, which is where my focus was. These are also known as hybrid systems. So the difference between these two lies within the connection to the grid. So standalone storage systems charge from the power grid, except during blackouts, whereas a co-located or a hybrid system will have renewable energy systems or storage systems behind a single grid connection and that allows for more dynamic pairing betwixt two or more systems. So in the case of uh, my most recent report, we're really exploring those 
connected or those systems that are connected directly to solar systems, which are using that solar to charge these energy storage systems. So where is there any regions in the world that we're seeing these technologies rolled out in specifically, or is it concentrated in one area in the world, one country? Uh, so we've seen solar growth, um, solar PV capturing a record share of global electricity generation, and it's continuing to grow. And again, that's on a, a global scale. So we've seen vast improvements in technology, cost reductions in system components, and a lot of policy changes that support this growth. So as for these systems, North America has the largest market globally, and we project that to continue to remain the leader over the next 10 years with Asia Pacific growing rapidly as well. So there's not really a region where we don't expect to see some level of growth in these systems at this point, but it should be noted that these systems are coming online as well as more standalone storage systems are coming online. So depending on where you are, there might be different incentives or tax credits to encourage growth in standalone versus a hybrid system or vice versa, visa versa, vice versa. I think that's right. We're good. Yeah, we're going to go with all of the above. So yeah, again, there's different incentives that might encourage people to buy more standalone or more hybrid systems, depending on those regions. But we are expecting to see growth pretty much on a global scale. Can I get kind of a context of the global growth of solar in the last 10 or 20 years? You said it's kind of growing in every market, but how much has it grown and how much is it supposed to keep growing? Yeah. So again, we're seeing that record growth on a global scale for solar PV development with those installations in 2022 increasing by about 8%. So to put this into better perspective here, in 2010, there was less than 25 gigawatts of solar installed globally that year. In 2020, 10 years later, there was about 150 gigawatts of new installations. And then in 2023, just last year, we saw at least 375 gigawatts of new global installations, most of which being in China, followed by Europe and then North America. So solar PV is seeing a lot of improvements, which is kind of lending to a lot of this growth. So let's talk about some of the factors you've identified driving solar energy adoption. Some are straightforward or come covered in previous episodes. Um, if you listen to our episode with Dan Power, we've talked about behind the meter storage. But I want to ask about some of the unique ones that you identified in your report that are particularly interesting. Um, one that you mentioned earlier was policy changes. So what sort of policy changes are driving solar PV or photovoltaic growth? Yeah, so looking at the policy changes as one of the biggest contributors here, that big driver is really coming from federal and state mandates for net zero carbon emissions. And there's a big push for fossil fuel plants globally to be retired and converted into a cleaner energy contributor, be it generation or storage or both. In addition to a lot of these different policy changes, looking at something more specifically, we see California, which is known to be one of the leaders on this front, they have issued a mandate that went into effect on January 1st, 2023, that states that most commercial properties are now required to have a co-located system to aid their initiative for that net zero carbon. California has that plan for 2040 is their target year. So additionally, with the policy changes, there's been a lot of changes to PPAs, the power purchase agreements to encourage the development of solar and additional incentives and tax credits for the operators to develop more co-located systems as well. And I want to ask about your specification about microgrids in remote regions you identified in your report, because that sounds 
just interesting. I'd like to know more about it. Sure. So definitely seeing a great push for solar plus hybrid systems in remote regions by way of microgrids. So the earliest of the systems were actually developed for island applications like use in Hawaii or Okinawa or Puerto Rico and so forth as a means to encourage the energy transition while also ensuring that these remote areas had energy independence and emergency backups for natural disasters. The technology is also seeing developments for more dynamic applications being explored, like for military efforts, healthcare, and construction. And there's actually units in development that offer the ability to be packed up and then redeployed in as little as two weeks to provide grid-like capabilities for systems on the move. So as we have military efforts that are moving, or we have construction efforts that are moving, or pop-up healthcare for maybe outbreaks and diseases or something of that sort. We are developing these units that can be moved where the action is happening and offer grid-like services for the needs of the effort in question. Can this technology be used to increase the resiliency of grids as well? Yeah, absolutely. One of the bigger things that I focused on in terms of grid resiliency in this report was natural disasters. So natural disasters are increasing in both frequency and severity, and they're starting to cost trillions of dollars in damages annually. Looking at Hurricane Ian in 2022, that was responsible for over 113 billion dollars in damages alone. And it also cost about 21% of Floridians to lose power for six or more days in 2022 in October. So building resiliency into the grid is critical as we're seeing these more intense storms of potential other challenges. So another piece to add to the grid resiliency need is potential threats from terrorism or data attacks, especially as we're moving towards more smart grid technology. It leaves us more susceptible to having these kind of attacks. So with installations of more of these hybrid systems, we're able to have a better defense against these forces to essentially keep our lights on. Responsible land use is a, uh, it's a big factor and driver for these kinds of systems. And this, again, was one of the more interesting things for me to cover. And thanks to my background, I'm going to throw a few statistics out there. So NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, has shown that utility-scale solar would only need to exist on 0.6% of the United States landmass to power the entire country. So that's thanks to the amount of solar penetration that the U.S. sees. Now, the continental U.S. receives so much solar penetration that an entire month's worth of demand can be met with only five minutes of sunlight exposure. So solar penetration and potential is measured in GHI, which is global horizontal iridescence, which I almost always say wrong. Locations across Australia, Africa, Chile, and Peru, and the Middle East, and of course the United States have a huge potential for this generation. So with so much potential in gaining more energy out of solar with the land that we have, the land responsibility and land use responsibility is becoming extremely important. So a utility scale solar plant can consume between five and 10 acres and you're in Chicago, so that's about half the area of Chicago's Millennium Park, and that's per megawatt. So 
we're seeing these massive plants getting deployed, which oftentimes requires the removal of local flora and even potentially altering the land topography for those installations. So weighing in the cost benefit to deploying these systems while also evaluating the environmental risk that we're taking on is really important. So that's a huge factor, making sure that we're using that land in a responsible manner moving forward. But so far, it's been really beneficial overall to have these systems installed. And I'm sure that these systems obviously don't take nearly as much of a toll on the environment around them that, say, a coal plant. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest contributor, again, is kind of just the clearing of local flora and potentially manipulating the topography. But of course, those aren't going to have the same kind of emissions that other kinds of fossil fuel plants will have. So you're not going to have something like in England where moths had to completely evolve into having different wing colors because the staining of the trees from the local coal plants. Just a real evolutionary thing. That's dark to think about. It is. Um, as dark yeah. as their wings became. Speaking of things that are lightly a downer to think about, let's talk about the barriers, things that are holding back the solar market. Because some of these were really interesting and I wanted to talk about them because one of them that you gave was forecasting and utilities' ability to plan prices ahead. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And based on my background, this is um, an important one to me and also something that's really interesting. So there is a massive need for the improvement and the ability to forecast the systems or the capabilities that would benefit from the growth of hybrid systems and the grid. So renewable energy has a very intermittent nature, and we already know that, and we know the infamous duck curve and everything else. And we know that, especially with something like wind, that's significantly less predictable than something like solar, which is still hard to predict. So that leads to renewable energy being treated completely differently on the market structure. And so with these challenges in predictability, we see a lot of slowdown and growth from a lot of operators who struggle to plan ahead on those costs, the transmissions, what kind of day they're going to have in terms of grid congestion and so forth. So there's a huge need before we can really have more mass deployment in these kinds of systems to increase our capabilities in statistical modeling to really get an idea of how we can more appropriately predict what a day is going to look like for the benefit of the operators as a means to really encourage them to want to start installing these kinds of systems. And another one that you gave was, you called it market power mitigation rules. And I'm not going to try to explain that. Could you explain that for listeners at home? Yeah. So as for the, the market mitigation, those rules, which kind of help drive the, the power market, um, they were really developed for traditional resources and they're based on fossil fuel costs. And so those are not inclusive of the differences that we see with renewable energy. There are rules that are currently being developed for standalone storage, which is much easier to account for because there's less complexities and there's less unpredictability with those kinds of systems. But with these hybrid systems, they are really complex and it makes for a very challenging development of rules to be applied. So there's been a lot of kind of cloudiness around how these rules are going to affect how operators are able to proceed. So 
what really needs to happen and probably one of the bigger barriers than just the forecasting alone is we need to have a lot more clarity established before we can really bolster this growth with how these rules are going to come into play, how they're going to affect operators and consumers, and how are we going to account for the complexities of these unpredictable systems is huge. And it seems that a lot of what's holding these markets back is the way that all these power markets are built to accommodate fossil fuel resources. And as we've started moving into these more sustainable resources, the markets have been too slow to catch up. Yeah, we've had in some areas, we've had pretty extreme growth moving towards renewables. And you're right, there's just been a lot of other aspects and policy pieces that have just not been able to to keep up with everything else. And so there's a lot of areas where we're seeing a lot of bottlenecking with deployment of systems. And there's been a lot of countries and a lot of states that are slower in their development because they're just struggling to get a push for these policy changes to really encourage this growth. I want to talk about another interesting aspect of this is we've talked on the show about how much the manufacturing of batteries needs to ramp up in order to meet the growing electric vehicle demand. And you've identified behind the meter storage usually is just another large battery. Uh, Can you talk about how the battery market is affecting the rollout of these solar and storage deployments or how they're working together or if they're completely divergent needs? The biggest issue that we see today with the battery market in general is really looking at the supply chain as a whole and the capabilities of lithium-ion batteries and how they're competing with emerging technologies. Battery prices are actually dropping. They saw a pretty drastic increase over COVID and the pandemic, but since then have been dropping quite significantly, which you would think would encourage a lot more growth in that kind of realm. But we're seeing things like behind the meter residential storage actually start to slow down despite the drop in cost for lithium ion batteries. And lithium ion batteries are projected still to account for about 78% of the capacity market by 2032. They currently have about 84% of the market share right now. However, there's been a lot of concerns coming out around the sourcing of materials, and there's been a lot of newer policies around material sourcing for batteries as well as solar that have created a bottleneck as customs are requiring different companies to report on their material sourcing. And even companies that have locally or domestically sourced materials for their solar and for their batteries, as they present to customs that they have domestically sourced these materials, they're still seeing the same kind of slowdown as companies that are sourcing non-domestic materials, as there's just a really big push for more sustainably sourced and more ethically sourced components. And we, of course, have a decent reliance on some countries that have been challenging to work with. Trade has been hard. And again, the ethical piece has been challenging. So with the battery market, especially being so heavily driven by lithium ion batteries and with the solar market being so heavily driven by wafers, we're seeing issues in terms of actually getting components into the country. And once they're in the country, there's been a struggle with getting things deployed based on the queue. So one of the big issues that we're seeing is a lot of stockpiling, where a lot of materials for both solar and batteries are getting stockpiled. And unfortunately, a lot of solar panels are just ultimately getting destroyed instead of being deployed. So that's a really big issue that we see in terms of kind of batteries and solar in tandem. There's also... um, 
an interesting mix of oncoming and emerging storage technologies to really compete with lithium ion batteries right now. As far as EVs go, sodium ion batteries are coming on board as a potential competitor for lithium ion batteries. As far as energy storage systems go for the grid or long duration energy storage systems, we have things coming on board in electrochemical to mechanical systems and beyond. So one of the technologies coming on board that I'm rather interested in is flow batteries. And there's a lot of different chemistries and structuring around those. Something else I'm interested in is gravity-based storage systems, which are very much in prototyping phases. But these are altering how the energy storage market is looking, where these technologies are going to offer a lot of differences from lithium ion batteries where they're going to increase in lifetime and reliability and safety is a really big one and be able to operate for longer durations or in different climates. And that's going to really challenge the lithium ion battery market where the only real issue that we're having with these emerging technologies at this point is cost competitiveness with lithium ion batteries. But a lot of these technologies are going to be cost competitive in the next few years by our forecasting. So as the specific market around lithium ion batteries change, it's not altering the co-located or the hybrid solar system market so much because we'll be able to transition into a different kind of energy storage system. So the issue that we're having is similar between lithium ion batteries and solar where it's a lot about the material sourcing, but as far as the actual storage part goes with these systems, there's so many other technologies that are falling into different interesting niches in the market and ultimately what we're going to really need is a diverse portfolio of technologies for storage systems so that we have a lot of different bases covered for a lot of different needs because these technologies are going to offer different things over each other. So ultimately the manufacturing of batteries and the ramp up to meet the demand is not going to necessarily be an issue so long as we can encourage the growth of these other kinds of emerging storage technologies. That was a great answer and a good thing to think about and chew on going forward. Last question before we let you go, Aaron, whenever we, you know, us as analysts focus on this level of detail on one industry, we tend to find something fun or interesting or strange or otherwise notable. Anything to report on from the hybrid solar storage space? Yeah, you know, Jake, when I was doing my research on the hybrid solar plus storage system, I came across perhaps one of my most favorite things that I've come across in all my years in doing renewable energy research, and that was solar sheep. And I'm not sure if you're aware of what solar sheep are. Enlighten me, please. Yeah, there's, um, there's an organization called the American Solar Grazing Association. And what it does is it tracks solar sheep farmers and grazing sites and solar arrays. So different farms are in different, and by farms, I mean like solar farms and agricultural farms. They're using sheep to basically take care of their vegetation management. So they are improving both the health of the solar plants by keeping the vegetation levels manageable while also increasing the agricultural health by being a sustainable, natural, and obviously pesticide-free source for basically crop care. So there are some sites that actually have live cams to follow the sheep. All right. They have dubbed them YouTube, as in you like a female sheep, like E-W-E. <laughs> 
And so it might not necessarily be super strange, but it is certainly cute and absolutely one of the most amazing things I've ever found in my research on renewable energy. Oh my God. I will absolutely be posting a link to this in the description. So anyone listening to this can scroll down and find the new thing that they're going to watch for the rest of the day. Yes. There is nothing else you need but YouTube. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for joining us here. To learn more, her report is available on the Guidehouse Insights webpage. To keep up to date with the podcast, please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Erin made me upload this to Amazon Music now. I wanted to listen to them. (laughs) We look forward to you joining us for our next conversation in February. And thank you to Guidehouse for providing us this platform discussion. To keep up to date on the larger Guidehouse Insights work, Follow our industry insights blog on the website, guidehouseinsights.com. Aaron, thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Jake. And thanks everyone else for listening. Of course. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.